Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we share wisdom and practical tips to help you grow stronger in all areas of your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who offer real-world experiences that you can apply to your own journey. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm Meredith Bell, your host, and it is my privilege to interview very special guests who share their wisdom and will challenge you. And my podcast is sponsored by Performance Support System, publisher of software tools and books for improving the way people communicate at work. And you can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. My very special guest today is my wonderful dear friend and colleague, Koji Makai. Koji, welcome to my show again. Thank you for having me, Meredith. I appreciate it very much. Well, I want to remind people who are new to my podcast that are that are also faithful listeners that you are my guest on episode number 54. And on that episode, we talked about your book on resiliency called Disrupted. And we're going to talk about your latest book. But first, I want to give people an introduction to who you are. Koji is a performance psychologist and founder of Koji Makai Worldwide. He is the proud owner, you might say, of two doctorate degrees. He has a doctor of psychology in clinical psychology and a PhD in applied management and decision sciences. And we're going to talk about this today. He recently became a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy, a process that took more than five years. Koji's sole mission for the past 20 years, I love this, is to use behavioral science to help people thrive. He's the author of award-winning social research, as well as several business and self-help books. And today, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about his latest book, which is called Sharpening Your Edge, How to Turn Potential into Performance. So, Koji, are you ready? I've got lots of questions for you. Let's do it, Mary. Let's do it. <laughs> well, the first thing is there's a term that you use that you have now registered as a trademark called pro-personal, and it's you know throughout your book. So, first explain what you mean by that. Why did you decide that was an important word for you? Well, I think the, the, biggest, the biggest thoughts for me were around how we try to delineate different types of development. We assume that a person, when they develop professionally, it's strictly for their professional life. And then similarly, when they develop personally, it's strictly for their personal life. And I wouldn't have a job. I wouldn't have a career if that's, what ha- that's how simply it worked. It's because our personal life creeps into our professional, our professional creeps into our personal. And obviously, this is long before COVID. So in our world, we want to help people develop as an entire human being. So we're not looking at them solely as a professional person or as a personal person. We want their personal development to to augment and impact their professional life and then their professional development to augment and impact their personal life. 
because what we teach, we want people to practice every day and all day throughout their, uh, their experiences. And that, that's what makes it more life-changing rather than it just changing their personal life or their professional life. We wanted to marry those two. Mm-hmm. That's great. I like that phrase very much. And so I'm going to zoom out first to the big picture because this is really all about a person's pro-personal edge. Mm-hmm. And of course, your, the title of your book is Sharpening Your Edge. But before we get into sharpening, let's talk about what are these edges that can get dull and need to be sharpened? Well, you know, it's a good thing you asked because I actually have something in this room to show you. It is an axe. Oh, my. <laughs> no, who keeps an axe in their office? It used to be in my living room and it got a little creepy for people who came to visit. But this is a pretty old axe. It's not 100 years old or anything like that. It's probably 10, 15 years old. And I asked uh, my American dad, George, I asked him if he had an old axe. And I was putting together a video. And this is what he gave me. And the reason I wanted to look at this axe is you can, if you know, even in black and white, you can tell it's rusted. You can tell it's pretty dull. You could probably still chop down a tree, but you're probably going to require a lot more energy. You're going to require a lot more uh, input. We're the same way. Um, In everything that you and I do, there's an edge to us. There's a strength to us. There's an ability to us. And we assume that we naturally have that strength and that ability for the rest of our life. But the truth is, it's it's an edge that we have that we have to constantly be sharpening, constantly developing. And so I am very particular about my edge. And I want to figure out what is, say, my communication edge? What is my leadership edge, uh, edge or my relational edge? Each of us has to figure out which, what, area in, what area we have an edge in and then constantly sharpen those edges. So when I was thinking about conceptually what the, the topic of the book would be, it was how do we get people to the point where they first recognize their edge and then do the daily work because it is daily work. How do you do that daily work of keeping that edge sharpened? Because you never know when you need to chop down a tree. Now, most of us are not going to chop down a tree, but it might be a relational tree, right? Proverbially that you need to chop down. It might Mm -hmm. be a professional one where there's a sales opportunity or there's a business opportunity or a leadership opportunity. I always want to be ready when that moment comes because it's if you're trying to sharpen your edge right before you need it, it's already too late. Mm, that's a good point. And we're going to go deeper into the edges. But first, I want to um, just talk about the word thrive, because it's one of the things I love about your company's purpose to help people really thrive. And I would like you to really talk about what do you mean by that? Uh, when you think about performance at work, what are you referring to? So when I think about performance at work, this idea of thriving a lot of people, unfortunately, there's a dichotomy, I suppose, in, in how we experience life daily. We're either surviving it or we're thriving in it. And I would like to, to be a tool and a resource in people's lives that shows them paths towards thriving. Now, thriving doesn't mean everything is perfect because we're never in that state. There's always something that is not quite where we want it to be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we aren't thriving. And for a lot of people at work, their strengths are not being used every day at work. Mm -hmm. 
And according to Gallup, when our strengths are being used every day at work, our performance goes to higher heights. Our team engagement goes to different levels. Uh, small things that you, you and I might call small things in terms of data points, such as injuries at work, reduce. Absenteeism reduces, simply because somebody has been given an opportunity to thrive, and now they've, they've found a way to get a little deeper connected into their organization. That's what I think about when it comes to thriving, that I am excited to go to work because it's not because I'm going to work because I have a stack of things that need to be brought down. It's I'm really excited today because yes, there are these things that need to be done, but I know for a fact that today somebody is going to call upon my strengths and I will bring my strengths to the fore. That makes me excited and more engaged at work. And so those two words for us, engagement and thriving are really tied. How do we breed, bring more engagement into the workplace for the individual, whether it's that individual making certain choices and decisions on their own, or it's the organization creating the environment for that to happen. How do we make those little things happen so that we can start pushing that needle uh, a little forward? Mm -hmm. Well, thinking about the individual responsibility that someone might have to bring that to work, how can they um, develop what you might call a thriving mindset so their own attitude allows them to see ways to thrive themselves with that whether the organization is overtly attempting to create that for them or not well i think the sweet spot is when i've got the right mindset and i show up with the mindset of i'm going to thrive today regardless of what the uh, impediments might be one, that's one piece. The other piece is that my organization creates the environment for me to thrive. That would be a perfect situation. That would be absolutely a perfect situation. Unfortunately, sometimes you have one and you don't have the other. So what happens when I show up to work and my organization hasn't really put a plan in place or a culture or an environment for that to happen? Well, I don't have a lot of control over what they ha they're doing. I do have control over what I'm doing. And so in my world, and as I work with our clients, my constant ref refrain is I need you to focus on working the problem around what you can control, not what somebody else controls. So you, you don't get to control whether the organization itself is going to create the environment, but you can create the personal environment around you. That means in every meeting that you go to, you're impacted positively. In every um, hallway that you walk through and you meet people, you create an environment where that changes. And that's an individual choice. And in some organizations, even when they create the best environment for that, most managers and leaders don't realize this one thing. I believe that number was 55 or 60%, 55 to 60% of uh, performance is based on my personal decision. It has nothing to do with the tools around me. It's all discretionary. And so the best leaders, the best managers pull out as much discretionary performance out of us. And how do they do that? By really understanding who we are, by really focusing in on that connectedness that's necessary, whether we're working virtually or partially virtually, you find ways to really connect with people on a genuine and a close level. That's one of the weird blessings we've gotten from, from, from COVID is now the boundaries are somewhat blurred between home and work. And so a manager can't escape asking a parent how their kids are doing. 
Mm-hmm. They can't escape asking how their parents are doing, which for most of us, that was, that, that's not things that we did. But I come from a culture where that's what you do. You ask, how are people doing? What's going on with them? You really get deeper because the relationship is the centerpiece first. And then we can draw out a lot more uh, engagement and performance from people. So for an individual, they have to make a, a choice about who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with their manager. It's who do you want to be and how do you want to represent and what personal culture do you want to bring to every environment that you enter? And if you're willing to do the work and put in the work day by day and moment by moment, the results are really amazing in terms of thriving, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, lowered anxiety, in terms of sheer joy of just being able to show up at work and do your work, regardless of what the environment dictates. Mm-hmm. Well, I really liked the way you structured your book because it's very easy to to follow with looking, you know, overall at the concept first and and in terms of your edge and then you go into discovering, sharpening and leveraging it and we'll talk about those, but in that introductory part, you talk about strategy, being strategic and also having a competitive advantage. And you have personally experienced this and used your own story of becoming a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy that I was just amazed at in terms of the length of time that you spent thinking through what would be necessary. It took you over five years. And I think it would be very instructive for um, my listeners to come to appreciate what can go into their thinking when there's a specific goal that they have and how they're going to need to manage their edge in that process for the long term. So tell us about that. Um, I know the question I've been getting a lot lately it also includes, you know, well, this, there's two of them. Why now? Why the Navy? Um, why the military at all? You know, my late father was served in Zambia in the police service and our police service is, nat- is national, much like many other countries, it's national. And he served for over 20 years, 20, 25, maybe 30 years, actually. And I grew up around that discipline of, you know, shined shoes, um, ironed pants and, you know, everything lining up from your chin all the way down. Uh, you know, just I, I grew up around that. Uh, it drives my wife nuts because I wake up in the morning and I want to make the bed, except I wake up at five or six o'clock in the morning. So I can't exactly make the bed with her in it. But that was a big, big deal for me. And so I wanted to go in and, and do my part. You know, the, this country has been phenomenal to me. Uh, most people think the U.S. is the land of opportunity. I think it's the land of access because sometimes there's more opportunities outside the U.S., but here we have access. We, we actually have a way to plug in and make our dreams come true. And one of my dreams was to give back to the country that has given me so much, the relationships that I have and the relationships that I have for the rest of my life, they're right here. Uh, my siblings live all over the world. So outside of my siblings and maybe a handful of friends, the rest of my, what I would consider my closest friends, my Ohana, you included, are right here in the U.S., I wanted to, to give back a little bit and bring my civilian skills to the military and then learn from the military and bring those skills back into my civilian world. Um, 
but it was a process. Um, I wanted to go in as an officer. Initially, I was going to go in enlisted, but my friends who were serving or had served encouraged me to wait and to go in as an officer. And so the process is extremely long between trying to get paperwork sorted out and everything else. It took a long time just to do that. But on top of that, I had to wait until I was a citizen because you can't be an officer unless you're a citizen. And there's a waiting period for my citizenship. So I had to do all of that. In the process of waiting to get all that done, I looked at where I wanted to be and what, what types of decisions I wanted the board that would be deciding my fate to come to. What conclusions were they going to come to about me? And I wanted them to have a very compelling case. Besides all the people who are going to personally interview me and write recommendation letters, I wanted them to look at my resume of work or my body of work for five, for minimum five years and beyond to show how serious I was about this, that I had really considered the, the consequences and the ramifications of becoming an officer and the value that I would bring. And that was probably the most important part was really building as much value from getting certifications and really growing and learning and then practicing those things that I learned in my day-to-day -day experience so that when interviews were, were conducted and all this paperwork was in front of the board, they would have no choice but to say yes. But the only way you do that is by, re by reverse engineering the process. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the end that I want to get to. What are the, th what are the things, the 10 things, the 12 things that need to happen in order for us to actually get here. And so it's a lot of research, a lot of soul searching, and a lot of hard work, which is worthy work in my mind, when you, when you figure out what you want to do, but probably more importantly, who you want to be, because I think that's really the most important part, right? Anyone can go get more education. Anyone can get a certification. For me, it was about who I wanted to be. And I wanted that to be represented, whether it was in my personal statement or in the statements that others would make, because they got to see me as an individual and that the, and that the military or the Navy specifically would be at a loss for not picking me. I wanted to make the decision really hard for them. <laughs> Actually, you wanted to make it easy for them. To say yes, <laughs> I, wanted to make right? it, I wanted to make it hard for them to say no. Right. <laughs> I wanted to make it really hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what was interesting to me, uh, and really amazing, just thinking about the recommendations that you got from folks, you invested time in those relationships for someone to get to know enough about you to say, yeah, this guy, you should, you should pick him, right? Yes. Um, I don't know, of all the things that I did, um, I imagine there are others who have my pedigree, um, perhaps even a better pedigree on paper. I think what made all the difference for me, and I, I may never know, but I'm very convinced that it's the relationships. It's um, people I won't be able to mention on, on this call, but it was people who were high up in the military, who we had relationships, who called one friend and then called another and said, you need to spend some time with this person and get to know them because that we think they're going to be a good, good match for the, for the Navy. So these are people who are in opposite branches, who are making connections with other people. And that's all it took. It was that one domino to fall. And those relationships had been nurtured for years, not months, not weeks, for years in order for that one thing to, to happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just like me. If you were to come to me and say, Koji, I know somebody named Jane, and Jane would be a perfect fit for X, I wouldn't ask 50 questions because all I need to know is that you said that. 
and I would go to bat for that person. And so the relationships in our lives make a whole lot of difference. And I think that's one of the edges that we often don't sharpen enough is our relational edge. We, we, we listen to respond instead of listening to build relationships and to, and to create bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, those types of things don't really make for people getting closer. But I made the investments for years because, first of all, I liked these people. And, you know, they were close, they were close in value the way I have my values. And I knew I could learn from them. And that's what I did. And we became, we became friends. I knew them and their family and their kids. And we basically lived life together such that when the opportunity came for me to make this move, um, they, they had my back. And they've had, they had my back from five years ago because some mm-hmm. of them, you know, 10 years of a relationship, then we get to that five-year point of now I'm going to start working on these pieces. And they were a constant advisor. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it was, it was so wonderful to have the person that encouraged me the most be the person who swore me in and, and mm. administered the oath of office. And so that was a very, very special thing for me. That's so cool. Well, you know, there's an important distinction here. As we talk about building relationships, there's being strategic uh, in that almost sounds manipulative. You know, I'm going to develop this relationship so that in the future I can ask something versus I'm going to develop this relationship, see how I can be of value. And if there's an opportunity somewhere that happens to present itself, well, that's great, but that's not your motivation for doing it. Because I think people can pick up the difference in what your intention is. Yeah. Yes, they can. Um, I always know when somebody wants something from me and when they just want me. And so for me, that's important is I always want to show up and bring value, whether the value is an honest opinion when I'm asked, whether it's genuinely seeking out and wondering how they're doing, keeping up with them and their lives and us just talking about everyday things. Um, Part of relationship is being able to support each other when we need each other but also being able to just live day-to-day experiences together. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that for me was important because that's the other side of relationship. I understand that you know, there's a reciprocity that goes into relationships for the most part, but it's just knowing that somebody's got my back and that if I just want to talk about nothing at all, that I can pick up the phone and we can talk about nothing at all. If it's a big deal, something has happened and there's something that I need a favor, favor on, I'm not going to a stranger. I'm going to my friends when I, when I need a favor. Because I know those are the people who know me the best and they know what my motives are. And so I think you started the whole session today and the whole conversation around mindset. That's my mindset around relationships. And and truthfully, that's your mindset is how can I be of service to you? Mm -hmm. Uh, What can I do to make life a little bit easier for you? Um, I'll share this and I'll let you ask your next question. I remember when I when I was praying very diligently for opportunities to come for me to leave Zambia and come here. I remember a very distinctive prayer was, if you let me leave, right? And I said, God, if you let me leave, I will be a resource wherever you sent me. And that's pretty much my life. Every day, I want to be a resource to whomever I meet, whether we've just met, we've known each other 30 years or or not, I want to be a resource. Mm -hmm. And I think when when you enter relationships and conversations with that posture, it shocks people because a lot of people don't really enter relationships that way. 
But it's also something that's refreshing to people because they know that they can completely be themselves and be unapologetic. And that's the environment and the culture that I want to create whenever people are around me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people can really sense that. Well, let's use that as our framework for discussing some of the other things I wanted to ask you about from your book. This, This first section on discovering your edge, to me, is all about becoming more aware. And you make a distinction between your talents and your strengths. And so I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you define each of those and how they relate to each other in someone in the context of someone developing their edge. Yeah. So philosophically as humans, there are a few questions that we always want to ask. One of those is who am I? And, and discovering your edge really helps you answer that question, both as a professional and as a human being. And so as a professional, when I walk into the office, those are my questions. Who am I? What value do I bring? The discovery phase is really about helping people do two things. Number one, discover what their talents are. That means those are your naturally God-given gifts. So a person might be a natural artist, right? They might be a natural visionary. They might be a natural uh, great person with their hands. Um, One of the gifts I have is I can see how pieces fall together. Uh, that geometry just works really, really well for me, which is why I was in the sciences in, in a high school, because I can see that naturally. There isn't a great deal of work for me to do. Um, it's just my natural talent. But in order for that talent to add value to multiple people, at least to the most people, it has to be transformed from a talent into a strength. And something becomes a strength when a natural talent is sharpened to the point of it being so easy for a person to just bring it every day. Mm -hmm. Because just because I have a natural talent, right? Think of it from this perspective. Just because a person is six foot five doesn't mean that they can play basketball, right? They're six foot five. It's a natural gifting that they have. But if they have a natural gift of being tall and then having another talent on top of that, that allows them to dribble the ball, to shoot the ball, to pass, to box out, to do all those different things, we can put in the investment of time. We can multiply that talent with an investment of time for us to get over to a strength. And so when you think of talents, talents alone don't get us places. It's when we multiply those talents by investment of time, of, tre- of, the, you know, of our time on our treasure, that they become strengths. And so that discovery for me is important. That discovery phase is a person, first of all, needs to know what they're talented at. And there are wonderful assessments out there that you could use. You guys have some of those assessments, but there are wonderful assessments you can discover, you can you, you can use to discover that. But you have to take that, take it to the next step, which the natural step from there is turning that talent into greater value for people. And strengths is what people are looking for, not talents. And I know that there's some semantics there, but in all truth, it's not enough to just be talented. Mm-hmm. We need people who are going to be strong. Mm-hmm. And when you have people who are strong, they want to either stay strong or become stronger, which gives them the incentive then to constantly sharpen their edge. Mm-hmm. That's great. So let's think of someone that maybe doesn't truly appreciate, even if they have taken an assessment and shows they're strong in a particular area, but they're not seeing it. What are some ideas for helping them become more aware of who they really are? So human beings are amazing. 
um, which is probably why psychology is important for me, right? We're, we're so amazing that we can do grand and, you know, just mind-boggling things, both positively and negatively, unfortunately. And part of that, some, unfortunately, is when people can't see themselves as bringing value, it's a little bit deeper than just an issue of, you know, not seeing their talents. And part of that is really helping people with scripts. So I like to give folks a, a writing exercise, right? You give them a writing exercise. Tell me about your day and your week and the things that you did at that high level, right? The, basically the highlights. And then we break down from these are the things I did. And then we break it down to what those map down into. And then you go all the way down towards their talents and towards their strengths. So this week I walked into the office you know, these five things needed to be taken care of. So I took care of them. How long did it take you? It took me about 10 minutes. How long do you think uh, most other people it takes them? Oh, most people will probably take them an hour. Well, how come you did it in, in, in 10 minutes? Well, for me, it's pretty easy because I put A, B, C, and D. And now we're actually getting a little deeper and they start to see that organization is one of their talents. And then you can ask, why, why do you organize your world in this way? Well, because it's easier. It's easier to do it this way. It gives me more leverage mm -hmm. in this other place. As they tell their story, they start to see it from somebody else's perspective because that's where I get to do the highlights. If, if their story was on paper, I would be highlighting and underlining those points for them to mm -hmm. pop out, for them to see. And, and we all need that because you and I, like anyone else, are going to have those moments where we don't see our strengths. We don't see exactly what we bring because we think we're just doing what's normal. Right. We're doing our everyday stuff. And in all truth, you know, that's how it is even in my military career. I walk in, I'm just going to do my job. I don't think I'm doing anything special except somebody else is seeing it very, very differently. They see that perhaps I'm carrying myself in a way, in a, in a, in a very different or unique way. I think I'm just carrying myself in the way that is appropriate or how you're supposed to do it. So it's really about having enough voices that will either highlight, underline, or remind us in those most important moments, especially when we have self-doubts. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, there are more opportunities in day-to-day -day experience for self-doubts than they are for really building and encouraging our strengths and our talents. Mm -hmm. and so we always have to have a really good group of people who are willing to remind us, especially on the days when we're most stubborn. <laughs> yes. Or we've had setbacks or something yeah. disappointing has happened then that kind of leads me into another thing you talk about in the book, because those are all elements of, you know, what have been called soft skills, but you call them employability skills. And I really liked that. What is the reason for your changing that uh, terminology? There's a, there's a, there's somebody who's become a pretty good friend of mine, Dr. Goldberg, and he and I have talked about that. Um, he runs a, a nonprofit in Colorado <laughs> And unfortunately, when you keep using the word soft versus, you know, the hard skills, there's this idea that those are the things we should be focused on most, right? We need to focus on the hard skills because those are the things that bring money into the organization, which is true. And while, say, for engineers, right, we need engineers who have strong engineering skills. But if you have an engineer who's got strong engineering skills, but has no idea how to engage with people on a leadership level, no idea how to engage people on a communication level, we're going to have a problem. I am not advocating for one or the other. I think we should have both. What opens the door for me is my hard skills. 
on paper, I've got this degree, I've got this experience and so on. That's fantastic. But what allows me to win in the interview is not going to be my background in mm-hmm. terms of my, my hard skills. It's going to be how I can convince that panel of people who are about to interview me that I'm the best fit for the job and then continue, in, uh, continue convincing them for the entire tenure of my time at that particular organization. And so employability skills are the things that make all the difference. And those are communication, um, our self-awareness. You talked earlier about self-awareness, right? Mm-hmm. The best leaders are self-aware. They recognize that they cannot do it on their own, so they need other people around them. Most people move into a management role and they want to keep using their hard skills, except they've got a team of people now who are supposed to be doing the work that they were doing. And their job has shifted to mm-hmm. managing traffic. And that's, a, that's an employability skill. That's not, you know, or a tactical skill, right? That's, that, those are tactics. You're doing a lot of this to make mm-hmm. sure that the trains are moving at the right time and they're not, no, they're not running into each, other, into each other. So you have to do all those things. Those are employability skills. Those are not skills that usually you're going to get taught at the university. Those come through practice and then daily working on them. I have to work on my communication skills every day. I'm, a tra- I'm trained in, in communication, but still have to work on them every day. You guys wrote an amazing book on communication. We have to practice it every single day. Mm-hmm. And so that distinction for me is important. And I think once that distinction is made, more organizations and people start to invest in those skills a lot more. Because a lot of investment has gone into hard skills, and I appreciate that. But we need just as much of of investment in terms of time and money into our employability skills, because they're the ones that feed the proverbial beast. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. In the section on on, uh, sharpening, you have recovery, development, and coaching. I want to talk a little bit about recovery, because so many of us high achievers have challenges you know, relaxing, taking time off, seeing the justification, especially if we were raised with this work, work ethic, you know, and, and so we have to really rewire ourselves to see the value of taking that time, whether you call it downtime or just time off. Um, I really want you to talk about the importance of recovery because I thought you made a very compelling case for it and gave some great examples. I think the one thing that makes it easy for people to understand is when you look at one of these, how many of us can go 30 days and keep using this thing and never plug it in and charge it? Most people, it wouldn't even last a day because how often they use it. They use it for listening. I'll use myself as an example. You know, my podcast, that's where I listen to them. I watch some videos sometimes when I'm working out. I'm on phone calls, uh, email. And there's so many things I do. I charge this thing at least once a day. I say at least. I, I know I charge it once a day. Several people, multiple times. Every time they get in the car, it's charging, et cetera. We're the same way because we know that the energy in my phone is not infinite. It's finite. It's just the same as for us as individuals. There's only so much energy we're given every single day. We may have 24 hours, but there's only so much energy that we're given every day, depending on our personalities and so on. That's just naturally how it is. My job as a leader is to leverage that energy as best as I can. Part of that leveraging is recognizing that there are moments when I need to put in as much work as I need to do, which by the way, that's usually all the time. But I also recognize that I have to take a step away from my work 
to recharge. And part of that recharging is important. And I can tell you right now, the days and the moments when we have to recharge is when our best ideas are really twirling in our brains and we want to keep working. But that's when it's important for us to walk away because there's only so much time in every single day. We all know that, right? Um, you know, 8,760 minutes, right? Or was it 8,760 8, hours a year? I think that's what it is. Can't remember what the, which number it is, but the point is it's limited. Right. And so the, the, the real skill for us is going to be around how we manage our energy throughout the day. I need to know when I need to take a step back, even if that step back is five minutes or 10 mm. minutes or 15 mm-hmm. minutes. It gives me enough of a recharge. It allows me to plug back in so that I can bring as much energy as I can back to the work. And oftentimes, whether we're entrepreneurs or business owners or business leaders or organizational leaders, we feel compelled to keep going because there's a sad reality, whether it's from the way we were raised or what society expects, that we have to work hard in order for us to win. I agree. But working hard is not enough. If we take a high school team that works really, really hard and plays against the college team, they're still going to lose because it has nothing to do with hard work, right? And so it's the same thing with us. That's a reminder we need to have. And walking away from work is often my reminder that this work is important, that I do bring value to our clients, that I do bring value to the people that I work with, and that's a good thing. However, What's going to happen when they need me the most and my energy is the lowest? And so the example I use besides the cell phone is reminding people that on every flight that I've ever been on, they tell us the same thing all the time in multiple languages, depending on whether you're traveling internationally or not. In case of a a change in cabin pressure, put your mask on first, then help other people. And as leaders, oftentimes we want to help everyone else before putting on our mask for putting on our mask. And unfortunately, what that does is that it makes us a liability to everybody that's around us. Mm. I want to be a resource. And the best way for me to be a resource is to put my mask on first because I can't then help the people around me. And so part of recovery is recognizing that it's important for me to put my mask on first. Mm-hmm. That's great. You know, Koji, it's hard to believe we're running close to time here now. I want to just get you to kind of summarize what's the biggest takeaway you'd really like your readers to get from this book? Why did you write it? I, you know, I wrote Sharpening Your Edge because honestly, I wanted, I wanted a reminder for me, which is often how I write my books, is I want to read and to enjoy the book as much as other people read and enjoy the book. Um, And when I'm in that writing zone, and you're an author too, when you're in that writing zone, things come to you that just half the time you don't even know where it came from. And so I wanted a a constant and clear reminder that I haven't arrived. And I know that there are different measures for different people, right? I have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and two doctorates. And there's this assumption that, man, you've gotten all this stuff. There's not much more to do. But for me... I'm a lifelong learner. There's still so much that I don't know, right? Even with my two doctorates, and I've just I've only scratched the surface of my research areas. And so sharpening your edge is a cycle. We discover our edge, and then we sharpen it, and then we leverage it, and then we start over all again. We discover, 
and that's that process. You know, just this past weekend, I, I was working with my, my, my Navy unit. There were new things that I discovered. And doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that I didn't know about those things. It's just the fact that I discovered them either anew or I saw them from a different perspective. I want to be humbled like that every day, or maybe at the very least, every week. There should be something in my life that humbles me enough to realize I don't know everything. Even if it's in, in my area of expertise, I want that to be the norm. That's what I want people to get out of the book, that it's not over. It doesn't matter at what age you start, right? I'm 43. I got into the military at 42. Here I am at 42 years old getting into the military. Like, Who does that? <laughs> a lot of people are retiring. by A the lot day. of people. Exactly. A lot of people are retiring and getting out of the military. I'm the guy putting his hand up saying, yeah, let me in, coach. For me, I wanted that reminder, and I want people to have the same experience of this reminder that we are going to, we're going to need opportunities for renewal, and there are many opportunities for renewal, and we have access to multiple opportunities for renewal, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our connections with our children or our grandchildren, whether it's in our work environment or our neighbors and so on. There are multiple opportunities for us to re-engage with who we really are but also to re-engage with our community. And, and because of that, it's important for me to keep this edge sharpened, right? Today, I'm going to be taking my neighbor's kids, uh, four of them, right? Now, 16, 12, 10, and eight. I'm taking them for pizza and ice cream. Why? Because they're great kids. And I love those kids because they're very respectful and I want to plug into their life and be a resource. But for me to be able to do that effectively, I have to keep this edge in my life sharpened. I just have to, because they're important enough to me and I want to be a resource to them and their single mom. I want to be a resource to them. And those are the things to me that matter the most. So whether it's my, my neighbor's kids or my wife or you or somebody I run into at an airport, I want to be a resource. But the best way for me to be a resource is to make sure that my edge is constantly sharpened because I don't know what life is going to throw at me. I don't know which trees are going to be in front of me that need to be brought down. And I don't want to have a dull edge because then I'll have to work twice as hard to get it done. And to me, that's not efficient. So I want to be as efficient as possible. So well said. I love that. And, you know, as I was listening to you in that beautiful summary, I was thinking about how what you've written really does deserve to be reviewed and studied over time because that chapter on discovery where you're discovering strengths, you know, your talents and strengths, it's not a one-time thing. Mm -hmm. I continue to discover new things about myself through getting feedback from other people that I had never given myself credit for. And I can always strengthen those strengths yes. and become even better. And so I really just think the structure of your book is, is quite, while it's simple, it's profound because it reminds people of those elements that are involved in keeping that edge sharp. So thank you, Koji, for your wonderful contributions to the world in your work and in these books that you write so more people can get them. And I'm just so thrilled to be able to support your work in getting the word out to the world. Thank you for who you are, too, and in my life. 
Thank you. I appreciate it, Meredith. I feel the very same about you. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now, head over to growstrongleaders.com slash free and grab our ebook, Listen Like a Pro. You'll find out how to connect on a deeper level with the people who matter to you. And while you're there, check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.